Well, happy uh, Valentine's Day to all of you. Even uh, if uh, you're not in love with someone, uh, today is a good reminder of the words that we find in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so we all have reason to just spread a little bit more love around. And so welcome to all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are here in person at Central Campus, and those who are meeting at one of our other campuses. Last summer, I read an article that rocked me. The article was written about four months into the pandemic, and this was the title. As churches begin to open, it's time to finally start talking about closing them forever. Now, the author prefaced his comments saying that he fully expected to receive lots of blowback for writing the article. But he said, I'm okay with that because someone has to be the first to voice an idea that many others are thinking but are too polite or too scared to voice out loud. He wrote the article right around the time churches in the United States were opening up their doors for worship again after a three-month lockdown. And some, of course, were ignoring the protocols set out by health officials, um, meeting as they always did without any kind of physical distancing or anything like that. Well, this was the final straw for him, and so he used the article to vent how he really felt about Christians. And among other things, he wrote, Christians are the enemy of progress, the enemy of science, the enemy of reason, the enemy of logic, the enemy of morality and decency. In short, nothing less than the enemy of all mankind. I mean, can anyone name anything good that Christians have done for this country? Even one thing? What benefit do they really bring to America? What purpose do they serve? I argue there is none. We need to be honest, both with them and ourselves, that in the America we are striving to build, they and their religion have no place, nor should they. He goes on to write that the only option he sees is to ban Christianity. He writes, I would actually like to ban all organized religion, but Christians are the worst, so Christianity in all of its forms must be banned. Those who refuse to renounce its bigoted, antiquated, and hateful doctrine must be made to face the consequences. So how are you all doing after hearing that? Now, I know this article is caustic. I also know it's extreme. And the author's not only a bigot himself and largely ignorant about the Christian faith and its contribution to our world, but I think he is right about one thing. A growing number of people in our society do not have a very high opinion of Christians and the church. Now, I doubt many of us are surprised by that. But an even greater concern for me is that a growing number of people who actually claim to be Christians are wondering why is it necessary to be part of the church and whether the organized church is needed at all. Which raises the question, 
does the church and its mission really matter? Well, I raise all those questions because the church is one of the key themes in the scripture passage that we are looking at today in our ongoing series in the Gospel of Matthew. So would you please stand with me and join me in reading our scripture lesson. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And Lord, we just ask now that you would focus our minds. Lord, you would soften our hearts. And Lord, you give us the courage to respond to what you're asking of us. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So the question before us is, why does the church matter? Well, the passage we just read uh, gives us some answers to that particular question. First and most importantly, the church matters because she really matters to Jesus Christ. Our scripture text tells us in verse 13 that Jesus led his disciples to the northern part of Israel, to a place referred to in Jesus' day as Caesarea Philippi. It was about 25 miles uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was, and if you've been there, it still is a really beautiful place. Herod the Great named the place Caesarea and built a temple of white marble to honor his boss, Caesar Augustus, and to provide a place where Caesar would be worshipped as the Roman God. Prior to this, this place was a place of uh, Greek pagan worship, where people worshipped and offered sacrifices, including their children, to Pan, the Greek god of nature. Well, it was in this place of many gods that Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? It's an incredible question, isn't it? I mean, I can imagine the momentary silence among the disciples as Jesus' question becomes really personal. The time had come for them to step up and to really convey to Christ what they believed about him. Well, right in front of the cliffs adorned 
with dead stone gods right in front of the temple dedicated to worshiping Caesar Augustus. Peter, the boisterous, impetuous one, summons up his courage and he declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter's response is absolutely profound and it's completely true. In his answer, Peter sets Jesus apart from John the Baptist, from Elijah and the other prophets. He sets Jesus apart from all the other man-made gods that people worshipped. Jesus, declares Peter, you are more than a good guy. You are more than a great teacher or prophet. No, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So let me pause for a moment and ask you if Jesus were to show up here personally or wherever it is you are and ask you, who do you say I am? What would you say to him? You see, how you answer that question will affect everything in your life. Depending on how you answer that question, it will change your priorities and your values and the way that you live your life and use your time. It will impact the way you spend your money. It's going to affect who you spend your time with. And it's also going to impact the way that you respond to pain and suffering. And yes, it's going to impact the way that you see the church and how seriously you engage in the community and the mission of the church. You see, the church was Jesus' idea. He said, I will build my church. Notice he said it was his church. He loves and cares deeply about his church. The Bible refers to the church as his bride, whom he loves so much that he died for her. So here's the thing. If you reject Jesus as Lord and God, well, then logically I can understand why you would also reject the church or at least ignore the church. I can also understand you rejecting those churches that are unbiblical and not what Christ calls them to be. On the other hand, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then if you reject or ignore his church, you have an issue with him. You see, I believe this is why Jesus actually started out his discussion here in our scripture passage about the church by first asking the disciples and us today, who do you say that I am? Because you see, if we believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then being part of his church and being engaged in his mission is no longer optional for us. In the same way Jesus said he would partner with Peter in building his church, so he wants to partner with us and everyone else who worships him as Lord and Savior in building his church. Now after Simon voiced who Jesus is, Jesus turned to Simon and he told him who he is. Look at verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, or Petros, which means little stone. All right? And I tell you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock, now that's not little stone. The word that's used there in the original language is Petra. If you've ever been to Petra, it's all rock. So on this rock or Petra, which means large rock, I will build my church. Now I point out the difference between the little stone and the large rock because some Bible scholars believe Jesus was saying here that he would build his church on Peter. But Jesus did not say to Peter, on you I will build my church. No, he says on this rock, in other words on this Petra, this large rock, I will build my church, which really indicates that Jesus is saying he will build his church in partnership with everyone who confesses the truth of what just came out of Peter's mouth, which was that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so if Jesus is our Lord and King, then in his kingdom, there is no room for solo or private Christianity. Hebrews 10, 24 says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, toward God's agenda. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. <coughs> to worship Jesus as Lord and King is to join your life with the spiritual family of Jesus Christ or the church, whether that's in person or through Zoom right now during this COVID period. And it's also to be passionate about fulfilling the mission of the church, however it is God leads you to. Thank you. God bless you. <laughs> now, to be clear, in this I am not saying that we should worship the church or that its leaders are infallible or our ultimate authority. No, Hebrews 13 verse 17 calls us to respect and to submit to church authority, but we are not to worship them. No, the object of our worship should always and only be Jesus Christ. He is Lord, amen? He is Lord. He's the head of the church. Make no mistake, our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ, the living word, and the Bible, his written word. Friends, the church matters, not because it is perfect, not because it is always relevant, or because it always pursues the best priorities that we think should be pursued, or enacts the best strategies that we think should be enacted. No, the church and its mission matters because Jesus is Lord and the church matters to him. Now secondly, the church also matters because it gives attention to eternal issues. If you read the next section of scripture following the passage we just read, Jesus predicts his coming death and he challenges his disciples to have an eternal perspective in life and to give their lives to things that will really matter in the end. In verse 26, Jesus says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
The church matters because like Jesus, she regularly reminds people that this life is not all that there is. Challenges us to pause and to think about what we're giving our life to and why. Jay Kessler, he summarizes the novel Watership Down, which tells a story of a group of wild rabbits whose home is destroyed by a bulldozer making room for a new subdivision of houses. One little rabbit among them is kind of like Moses. He's found the promised land called Watership Down, and he's going to lead the other wild rabbits to it. Well, when our little rabbits arrive, they go through this hole in the fence and they come upon a group of rabbits that all look really quite happy and content. They are bigger and their hair is longer. They never seem to work or forage for food. And so the little rabbits, they move in and they begin to talk with the other rabbits about how life works in this new place. And so tell me, says little Moses, what do you eat? Oh, they say, we eat pellets. If you come out of your hole, you'll find a little dish, and in that dish are pellets. It's a marvelous life, really. You can't beat it. Well, it doesn't take very long for the wild rabbits to get the hang of this new way of living. They eat pellets, and they grow heavier, and their hair grows longer, like their cousin rabbits. And yes, this is a marvelous way to live. One day, little Moses he notices that the biggest, fattest rabbit is gone. And he asks, hey, where did old Fuzzy go? And the others respond, well, we really don't know. Every once in a while, one of us disappears, but we don't ask any questions. We don't like to talk about it. They're just gone. Well, little Moses doesn't like it one bit, and he decides to investigate. And to make a long story short, he discovers that old Fuzzy is now in some farmer's rabbit stew. And he's just sick to his stomach. And so he goes to the other rabbits and he says, don't you understand what happens when a rabbit disappears? And they say, we don't like to think about it. And we'd appreciate if you'd stop talking about it. This life is great. Leave us alone. And Kessler goes on to say, we live in a society that lives something like that. Many people live each day like they're going to live forever. They stake their life's efforts on power, fame, position, money, possessions, but they do not give much thought to God. They eat their pounds, as it were. They buy their golf clubs, their ski boots, their vacations, their homes, their cars, their cottages. And they don't want to think about the fact that one day they're going to die and they're going to leave it all behind. And what's going to matter to them then is not what they had, what they achieved or how well they lived. What's going to matter then is where they stand with God. And the sad fact is, you see, there are no voices in our culture challenging us to think about and address the eternal questions of life. And that is why the church matters, because in our society, she's the only voice that reminds us that there, 
that this life is not all that there is. A voice that reminds us to number our days and to face the eternal questions of life head on. The psalmist says in Psalm 39, 4, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. The psalmist prays, Lord, give me a reality check once in a while. Remind me that one day my days are going to run out. Give me a heart of wisdom, Lord. And that's why I'm so glad that Christ established the church. To remind me that there is a spiritual, eternal dimension that is every bit as real as the earthly, physical dimension. That I'm a special creation of God, even as you're a special creation of God, wired up not only with physical bodies, but eternal souls. I'm glad the church challenges me regularly from the scriptures to ask myself, what am I staking my life on? What am I giving my life to that's going to matter in the end to me and also to God? I'm so glad the church of Jesus Christ shows me how I can enter into a real relationship with God, how I can be forgiven and set free from sin, from the hurts and the regrets of my past, and how I can live in victory and know true peace in the present, regardless of my circumstances. I'm so glad the church reminds me regularly of Jesus' words here in verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? And yet lose their soul. That's why the church and its mission really matters. It deals with the eternal things of life, including the life-saving, life-altering gospel of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the church matters because it is the community, of, that, the community that Christ chose to bring his kingdom to earth. Jesus said that he would build his church with everyone who, like Peter, acknowledges and embraces him as Lord and King. Now that is significant because, you see, we become like the God that we worship. The God we worship shapes our character, our values, our affections, and our passions. For example... The Greek and the Roman gods represented here in Caesarea Philippi, they lied, they cheated, they committed adultery, they punished each other out of anger and jealousy. They were very human in their character. No wonder those who worshipped these man-made gods lived such evil and depraved and corrupt lives. On the other hand, our God loves his creation so much that he left the glory of heaven, became one with us and died for us. Our God forgives and he extends grace even when it's not deserved. Our God is a loving, good, generous and kind God who is never vengeful. If our God displays wrath 
It is only because he is a holy and a just God who is opposed to anything or anyone bent on hurting his children. And so it should not surprise us that when we worship our Lord, when we, increase, we will increasingly reflect who he is in our lives. We're going to be honest. We're more honest in a world of dishonesty. We're going to be forgiving in a world of unforgiveness. We're going to be more gracious in a world of anger and resentment. We're going to be more peaceful in a world of conflict and more generous in a world of greed. Now granted, there have been people and there have been churches down through history who have misrepresented Christ through personal moral failure or in the abuses they carried out in the name of Christ like the Crusades and the Inquisition, for example. The reality is Christians and churches will always disappoint us in some way because the church is made up of fallible human beings. No different, by the way, than the rest of humanity. Hypocrisy doesn't just exist in the church. We're all hypocrites on this planet in one way or another. But let me say this to you. As you mourn the failure of Christians that you look up to, Please don't lose sight of this. Even though Christians and churches and church leaders have misrepresented Christ and, and really are without excuse for their moral failures or whatever, that does not mean that who Jesus is and what he taught, his death and resurrection and his vision and his ideals for the church is any less true or real. It does not mean the church that Christ established and continues to build today is no longer relevant or necessary. Down through history, God has always raised up people to bring correction where it was needed and to bring people back to himself and to the truth. Historians tell us that wherever Christianity was lived out authentically the way that Christ intended the church to be, Peace and goodwill and justice reigned. You know, people ask me, often actually, how they should be responding to the forced lockdowns, the isolation, the other government restrictions, and, and also the, 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 the anti-Christian, anti-church movement that seems to be gaining momentum in our culture. A sense of loss of freedom and all of that stuff. And I challenge them, first of all, to stay focused on Jesus and his call in our lives. And then I also challenge them to read the story of the early church. When Christians didn't just face restrictions, but they were considered enemies of the state. Their life was on the line. Do that, friends. Read the story of the early church and you're going to discover that they devoted their lives to three things, to loving God, to loving each other, and to loving their neighbors as themselves. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise our freedom and our responsibilities as good citizens of this country 
and vote and write, talk to our members of government about our convictions and do what we can within the law to influence and to speak into decisions being made. But, what, but we need to do it in the spirit and the way of Jesus Christ. And we must not let our fear of persecution and losing our freedoms to cause us to take our eyes off Jesus and to bring us to a place where we see our neighbor as our enemy rather than a person that Jesus Christ died for and loves and causes us to add fuel to the growing polarization in our world rather than faithfully representing our Lord in our world the way the early church did. In Acts 2, the early church met regularly to not only encourage and care for and pray for one another, but to challenge one another to serve and to care for their neighbors and their community. They sold their possessions and their goods and gave to anyone who had need. They fed the hungry. They cared for the sick. They prayed for and encouraged the hurting. And when people uh, in their community saw how they loved and cared for one another and how they loved and served their neighbors, they were drawn not only to them as a Christian community, but they were drawn to the Jesus that they loved and worshipped. Rodney Stark of Baylor University, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he says, Christianity grew so rapidly in large part because Christians were such nice people who were willing to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and also for their community. Something that was uncommon and relatively unknown at the time. For example, during the two great plagues that swept through the Roman Empire in 165 AD and then again in 251 AD, each, by the way, killing a third of the world's population at that time. That's just a tad more than what's happened with COVID. So just imagine the enormity of what was happening then. What was happening was that the people of that day would literally take the sick and throw them in the gutter to die. It was the Christians who risked their lives to take them into their homes and to nurse them at the risk of getting the disease themselves. Historian Will Durant says Christians were known as people who helped the widows, the orphans, the sick, the prisoners, the victims of natural catastrophes. It was Christians who cherished life as sacred and would go out into the woods to save babies who were deformed or abandoned by their parents. And they took them in and they raised them. Christians established schools and orphanages everywhere, including the remotest jungles, teaching most of the people in third world countries to read and to write. Jesus' concern for the sick motivated his followers to not only pray for the sick, but to provide treatment and health care for the sick. Medical centers and hospitals were established all over the world, almost entirely by Christians this had virtually not existed before the church age. 
at least not the kind that provided quality health care. Even today, prior to COVID pandemic, thousands of Christian physicians and dentists and healthcare workers, some from our own church, donated weeks, months, even years of time to give medical aid to countries that desperately needed it. It is the church that has been at the forefront in providing help and care for those ensnared in addictions, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, the hurting, and to provide justice for those caught in human trafficking. And you see, the reason the church has and is at the forefront um, in so many of these areas, including the fragile lives of the unborn, is because unlike our present culture, the unique and distinct Christian truth held by Jesus Christ and his church is that regardless of their situation in life, people matter to God. That every person has dignity, is valuable, and needs to be treated like a child of the king. That's why the church and its mission matters. It is the vehicle our Lord has chosen to bring his kingdom in heaven to earth. To see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You know, often people tell me that their faith is a private matter between them and God. And they see no need to be part of the organized church at all. And yes, and yet here's the thing. All the amazing things, the wonderful things that I just spoke about that the church has done for others down through history, and I just gave a very, very, very 100,000 foot uh, general overview of that. All of that would not have happened or would be happening today if Christians didn't come together in Jesus' name to pray, to pool their resources, and to work together in an organized way. Yes, it's true that a relationship with God begins at the heart level, connecting with God in a real and a personal way. But if your friendship with God is genuine and you begin to know him and his heart of love, not only for you, but also for others, you won't be content to keep this to yourself. You won't be able to keep it to yourself or to close the door of your life to the needs of those around you. No, as you grow closer to Jesus, you will increasingly care about what he cares about. And you will see the importance of joining together with other Christ followers to accomplish the mission that he's called us to. You see, a private faith or a private religion doesn't do that. Even though the majority of Canadians are not part of the organized church and often point out all that's wrong with the organized church, the fact that Canadians on average give less than 2% of their income to any charitable cause tells me that most of those who have a private faith are sitting on their hands. They're closing their eyes and their blinds to the festering needs of humanity around them. And that's why I'll take Christ-centered, organized 
religion over unorganized, wispy, self-absorbed, private spirituality any day of the week. Yes, first and foremost, I need God's presence and power in my life. But I want to follow Christ with you, my fellow Christian companions. I need the encouragement, the prayers, the reminders, the accountability, and the example of others around me to help me to fulfill the mission God has called me to. And that's why the church matters. And in verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You know, gates, if you think about it, they're really not offensive weapons. When an army attacks, they don't fire gates at the enemy. The purpose of gates and walls is to keep some people out and to keep other people in. And what Jesus is saying here is that the church is on the offensive. He is calling us to join him in invading enemy territory. To join him in proclaiming the good news and setting people free in the name of Jesus. People who are spiritually blind, who are oppressed, are being held captive by the enemy. Jesus says, to do that, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Which means when we embrace him as our Lord and King, we receive his authority to do what he's calling us to do. He gives us the authority to bind the enemy in his name. He gives us the authority to loose people, to set people free from spiritual death and blindness and oppression and sickness and any other hold that Satan may have on them. That is the way that Christ lived here on earth. That's the way he ministered. And folks, that is the way that Christ is calling us to, to do in these uncertain and unsettling times. That's what he's calling us to do. You know, church, together with Jesus, we are involved in the most God-glorifying cause ever given to man. We are assaulting the gates of hell. And we're being used by God to set people free in Jesus' name and to change the trajectory of their lives for all of eternity. That is just so awesome when you think about it. And friends, that is why the church and its mission matters. I'll close with this. A number of years ago, Chuck Colson, he was awarded the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. And in his acceptance speech, which I encourage you to look up sometime, it was just a profound speech. Colson said, in a technological age, we often equate progress with breaking through new barriers in science and technology. But progress doesn't always mean discovering something new. Sometimes it means rediscovering wisdom that is ancient and eternal. Sometimes in our search for advancement, we find it only where we began. And friends, I believe that is especially true for the church. 
Being a vital part of the church of Jesus Christ is more than just attending a worship service in person or online. It is more than repeating a litany of rituals or forming some casual friendships. Being part of the church of Jesus Christ is being part of something that Jesus started. It is gathering safely in whatever way we can to encourage and to spur one another on and to remind ourselves of who God is and the promises of God. And it is also scattering wherever it is that Christ takes us through the week to represent him in our workplace, in our school, our home, our community. And he said, the gates of hell will not be able to hold us back. And friends, I stand before you as one among multiple millions who is absolutely thrilled to be part of a community of Christ followers, the church. A community in which Christ transforms lives. A community that has stood for over 2,000 years and that is making a real difference in our world and will never die. My prayer is, is that we will see the church not just as a place to go to, but a spiritual family that we belong to and serve Jesus through. That we will realize that we are the church and that we'll jump in with both feet. And after COVID, we'll link arms shoulder to shoulder and make the invisible Christ visible for all to see. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you just take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes, and ask yourself the two questions we become accustomed to asking. Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it?